Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And if you're using a Bible in the pew, it's found on page 1002. And uh, if you're new here, let me just, or for our regular members, we all need reminders. Let me just remind us that uh, our goal for the next 40 minutes or so, maybe a little bit less, uh, is to read God's Word and then hear God's Word explained and then hear God's Word applied. You see, uh, we think that, that hearing God's Word uh, and all is one of the most essential things we do as a church. Because we believe that God has revealed himself and his plans for us in his word. So every week, we as a church assemble together so that we can hear God's word and be changed by God's word. We believe that God's word calls God's people together. We don't need to rely on nifty tricks or, you know, offering some gimmick to get people to come. We believe that we, we preach God's word and he will call his people together to, uh, to be changed by his word and become one uh, under him. So that is what we do, and that is what we are going to do right now. So in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful over all of God's house. For Jesus is counted, of, uh, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by somebody, and the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all of God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our boasting and our confidence, our, our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we want to sit under your word, that we may benefit from your word, grow in greater Christ-likeness, grow in greater conformity to your will. Lord, we pray that your word would have its attendant effect in our lives this morning. Lord, root out sin, root out bitterness that we're harboring, Make us wise unto salvation, and not just to be saved from hell, but unto salvation in the fullest sense of becoming like Christ, fully transformed into his nature. Lord, use your word to encourage us who are discouraged. Lord, use your word to give us joy, and give us life, and give us thankfulness to praise you. Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things through your word as we focus, as it causes us to focus our attention upon Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, this is a fascinating passage uh, that we have before us, and I want us to get into, um, see how it works together. But before I do that, I want to read you 
a story of a pastor by the name of Polycarp. Um, he was a pastor in the uh, first, second century, um, not long after the time of Christ. Uh, church tradition has it that he was actually discipled by none other than the Apostle John. And this is the story of his death. And I want to read it because I think that many of the things that we see about um, uh, well, I think his, his story fits with many of the themes that we see in Hebrews 3. I think his story will help you know, put flesh and bones in the, uh, the instruction that we find in Hebrews 3. Uh, but first, a little bit of background. Uh, at the time of Polycarp, Christians were being persecuted. And the reason why they were being persecuted was that they would not make sacrifices, uh, sacrifices of worship to the Roman emperor. Um, back then, Rome... The government at the time essentially had its own religion. And the way that you prove that you are a loyal citizen was by offering a sacrifice to the emperor. But of course, Christians could not in good conscience do that because they can't worship the emperor. They, they worship Jesus. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And many, many Christians were put to death for refusing to worship the emperor. And here's how the story goes with Polycarp. When he heard the guards had come to take him, he went down and conversed with them. The bystanders wondered why the guards were so eager to take an old man like him. He asked for some time to pray. And for two hours, Polycarp prayed to his God with such courage and boldness that some of the guards were converted to Christianity. Polycarp was taken into the arena. That's the place where all would gather to see him die. And there he was given a chance to be spared the the Roman soldier said to him, Say, away with the atheists, and we will spare you. You see, the Christians were charged with being atheists because they would not worship the emperor. So, if Polycarp would simply say those four words, away with the atheists, then that would prove that he was not really a Christian. It'd be so easy for him to just say that simple thing. Well, the, the wise pastor actually did say, away with the atheists, but he looked to the great multitude of bloodthirsty spectators and said, away with these atheists. And the magistrate asked him, why will you not make a little sacrifice to Caesar and save your life? And the old man responded, for 46 years I have been Christ's servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I turn against my king who saved me? The magistrate said, I have wild beasts here, you know, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent of your Christianity. To which the pastor replied, Hey, call for them. For repentance must be from pagan to Christian, not the other way around. The magistrate said, Well, if you despise the wild beast, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for a season and then after a little while is quenched. You are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. The magistrate announced, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. And the crowds yelled back almost with one accord, then he should burn. So they prepared a place for his burning. And then, looking up to heaven, this pastor prayed for the last time on earth. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, may you receive me in your presence this day. For you are the faithful and true God. 
For this and for all other things, I praise you. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, and through your Holy Spirit. To you be both glory now and in the age to come. Amen. Well, that is the story of Polycarp's death. I wonder, do you see any connection between that story and the passage I read in Hebrews 3? What I find personally so compelling about Polycarp's story is the confident boasting. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Even his boasting? His confident boasting that he has because of the faithfulness of Christ. He says, for 46 years I have been his servant. He has been faithful to me. How could I deny him now? I think the author of Hebrews captures that attitude of, of bold confidence when he talks about holding fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's what this passage before us is about. Confident boasting in our hope. Now, what allows Polycarp to have that attitude? Well, I, I think it's because Polycarp obeys that central command that we see given in this section. Look there at the middle of verse 1. Consider Jesus. See, that... Uh, Old confidence and boasting comes when we consider who Jesus is. And so when Polycarp was faced with pressure and temptation, he considered Jesus. And that's what we must do. The root of that word consider comes from the Greek word mind. One translation, I think it's good, uh, translates this this phrase in um, verse 1 of chapter 3. Think carefully about this Jesus. Think carefully carefully about this Jesus. Or you could translate that, contemplate Jesus, meditate on Jesus. In other words, take those situations in life, the situations, wild beasts, fire, or whatever else is hard, and put Christ there in, oh, before it, and contemplate Jesus and how Jesus relates to what is hard. And then we have confidence and boasting. Well, friends, I've been praying that we as a church would live our lives with that same kind of bold confidence. You know, I think that as a pastor, I have good reason to want that for us. I I want us not to be nominal Christians. That is, Christians in name only. I want us to be Christians who have great confidence and great boasting in Christ and live boldly in that way. I want that, but God wants that infinitely more. So let's look at the text, and I think we'll see three ways that this passage encourages us to consider Jesus. And let me just tell you what those ways are at the beginning. If you're taking notes, here's the outline. First, we must understand who we are in Christ. I'm sorry, rather, well, it is that, but also specifically who we are to Christ. That is, we must know the kind of status that we have before him. And I get that from uh, verse 1 here. Notice in the very beginning of verse 1, after it says, therefore, that string of qualifying phrases about who we are. Holy, brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. All of these phrases describe who we are, and all of those phrases are necessary for us to understand that we can consider Christ rightly. Second, we must understand who Christ is toward us. First point, who we are to him. Second point, who he is to us. What kind of status 
he has to us. And look there at the second part of verse 1, and throughout the rest of the passage, this will be the longest point, and we see a string of qualifying phrases about Jesus. The apostle, high priest of our confession, who is faithful, who is worthy of more glory than Moses. So, So the first part of this passage describes who we are to Christ, second part, who Christ is towards us, Sandwiched in the middle is a command for us to consider him. And then finally, third point, we must pay heed to the warning that if we don't consider him, it will not go well for us. Look there at verse 6. We are his house if we hold fast our boasting and our confidence in our hope. There's a condition, and we need to account for that condition as we uh, look at this passage. So first point. Let's consider who we are in relationship to Jesus, who we are to him. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, it begins, therefore, and that's a clear sign that the author wants to link this uh, command to what we see in the the section right before it that we looked at last week in chapter 2. But we aren't left just to kind of speculate as to what the author might consider in chapter 2 that's worth keeping in mind as we look at chapter 3, because this string of qualifying phrases about who we are in the beginning of verse 1, they all refer back to chapter 2. Let me explain. First, he says, holy. See that there in 3.1? Holy brothers. He calls us believers holy brothers. To be holy is another way to say to be sanctified. Both words come from the same root which means to be set apart, to be marked off, to be distinguished unto God. And holiness is essential. Later on in the book, the author of Hebrews will tell us that without holiness, we do not see God. Now, where do we get our holiness? Well, look there in chapter 2, verse 11. We looked at this last week. He who sanctifies, that is to say, he who makes us holy... He who makes them holy, and those who are sanctified, that is, those who are made holy, namely believers, are one. Remember that from last week? I pray it encourages you all week. It's a great truth. So when the author of Hebrews calls us holy there in 3.1, therefore holy brothers, I think he is making an explicit reference to the holiness that we have in Jesus. And we have holiness in Jesus because we are made one with him. He makes us holy in our union with him. But he doesn't simply say holy ones, does he? He says holy brothers. And this reminds us of the implication that the author draws out of our being one with Christ. Look there at the end of verse 11 in chapter 2. He says, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ is not ashamed to be a brother to us. The Messiah is is glad, is happy to make us part of his family. Friends, I pray that just encourages you immensely here. And then the author qualifies who he's talking to, that is believers, in one more way. He says that, that they share in a heavenly calling. Now, that word share is very rare in the New Testament. However, it does show up. In chapter 2, verse 14, it's translated differently, but it's the same word. Let me read it to you. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, and that's that word for share in 3.1, of the same thing. 
So here's my take on what the author is doing. I think he uses that unique word for share or partake in 3.1 to remind us that Christ has come down to share in our nature. But he doesn't just leave us on that point. No, he goes one step further. And he tells us here explicitly that we are then to share or partake in Christ's nature. We share in a heavenly calling. You see, one of the things that um, is so clear when we read the Gospels is that Jesus is not from here, right? His home is in heaven. Nevertheless, he has come down to be with us, to share in our nature, so that we can be brought up to be with him. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may also be. Or to put it in the words of somebody who actually came not that long after Polycarp, the pastor Athanasius, he writes, the Son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. Jesus partook of our nature so that we can partake of his. And we do partake of his if we are believers in him. Now, what does that mean for us as we consider Jesus? How does this truth about us affect our ability or inability to consider Jesus? Well, let me give you an analogy. Uh, This analogy comes from my experience performing a number of weddings over the years now and and, and talking with a number of of guys. Uh, I've observed a change that happens, particularly with guys, because they're the ones I usually get to know the best, as they become married to their wives. You see, a guy might start off considering a girl. He likes her. But, but in the beginning, he has no real standing with her. <laughs> she may not even know he exists. But he considers her beauty and her character, and he wants to know her. But as he stands, he stands as one who is far away. He has no confidence to approach her. But then, after a process of dating and then finally marriage, they become one, and they belong to each other. They are one flesh, the Bible says. The guy still considers her beauty, At least I hope he does. If I'm doing the wedding, I'll make sure he knows he must. But now he considers her as one who is right there with him. He considers her as one who has a claim on her as she has a claim on him. And that's a completely different thing. And so as we consider Christ, we ought not consider him as if we are far off as if he might not even know we exist. If we are believers in Christ, we are to consider him as we, who by his grace and mercy have been brought near. We are one with him. And friends, that makes all the difference in the world as we approach him. And then you might wonder, wait a minute, but, but don't I spend too much time thinking about myself already? The answer is probably yes. Why is it important that we, like, self-consciously consider this about ourselves? Well, do you think the answer is, if we don't put on our identity in Christ, if we don't come to Christ as a certain kind of person, recognizing that we are a certain kind of person that the Bible has said we are, uh, that is, one with him, joint heirs with him, uh, in a brother-sister relationship with him, well, then will come out of a false identity. We'll act out of an identity in which we think we are far off from him. Or if we think we're close to him, we'll think we're close to him for the wrong reasons. Look at all the work I've done. Yeah, 
I must, Christ must like me for all of this. Without a proper understanding of ourselves, we'll never have a proper understanding of Christ. And then the Christ that we consider will be a figment of our own imagination. And we won't have any confidence or any boldness. So friends, simply follow the example of the author here. Look at those qualifying phrases that he gives us to consider about ourselves as we consider Christ. Recognize that those are there for a reason. They mean something. Give attention to those. Well, now we actually have to consider Jesus, and that's the second point. Consider who Jesus is to us. Consider his status and standing. Notice the second half of chapter 3, verse 1 here. It says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. The author, as he tells us to consider Christ, wants to draw our attention to the faithfulness of Christ. Christ was appointed as a high priest and an apostle of our confession. An apostle simply means a messenger from God. And high priest means that he is the one who brings us to God and who makes a sacrificial offering so that uh, it satisfies God's wrath and we can approach God. Christ is the one who does those things. He is the high priest and apostle of our confession, which means simply that he is the substance of our faith. It is him who we believe. And the author here wants to highlight the fact that as an apostle and a high priest, Christ was faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, faithfulness is doing what is most loving for a person, even when it's hard, for a long time. Faithfulness is love over years. Don't many of us struggle with faithfulness? We have so little patience for things that are difficult, particularly people who are difficult. We want the fastest and easiest way. We want to avoid suffering at all costs. It can't be done quickly. It's not worth doing. But praise God, Jesus is not like that. He chose the hard road of obedience to the one who appointed him, a road that cost him suffering. And friends, he did that in order for God to be faithful to us. He was faithful to his father in his role as a high priest and apostle. And that that role as a high priest and apostle, that benefits us. He is our high priest, our apostle. Friends, when you consider Christ's faithfulness, do you find it motivates you to be faithful too? Think about how many years have you been a believer? Steve talked about this in Bible study last week. It was really encouraging. He had people go through and tell how many years they've been a Christian. How many years have you been a Christian? Think of that number in your head. And then think that God has been faithful to you all that time. All that time, he has kept you in the faith. He has taught you many things. All the times in which you have sinned after being a believer, he has been faithful to forgive you. All the times that you have been obedient to God, he has been faithful to give you the strength for that obedience. Consider the faithfulness of God to you in Christ, and then see if you're not led to agree with Polycarp. For this many years, you know, fill in the blank there, I have been his servant, and he has been faithful to me. How could I be anything but faithful to him? Well, the author goes on to develop this theme of faithfulness by comparing and contrasting Jesus and Moses. Now, this at first might seem a little bit trivial, but it's actually very important 
So remain faithful in your, atten- in your attention here. Moses was a man who was, according to the Old Testament, renowned for his faithfulness. The author here, in talking about Moses, is alluding to Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, where God is talking about his servant Moses, and God says, Moses is faithful in all of my house. There are many ways, read the book of Exodus, that Moses is faithful. He was faithful to lead the people through the desert. He was faithful to stand before Pharaoh. He was faithful to bring the people God's law. He was faithful to bear with the people as they were grumbling and complaining. Still, Moses' faithfulness is not in the same category as Christ's faithfulness. There's an irreducible difference because it's a different kind of faithfulness. Look there at chapter 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a, what's it say? Servant to testify of the things that would be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Right. So we have the faithfulness of a servant compared to the faithfulness of a son. And the author is saying that the faithfulness of a son deserves more honor, deserves glory. What's the difference between those two? Well, I think the best thing to do is think of the TV drama, Downton Abbey. Remember that? Some of you have seen it probably. It's a, if you haven't seen it, it's a British show about a large family uh, estate uh, during the time of World War I. The family operates this large, this large household. And what you see in the show is different kinds of faithfulness, or for that matter, unfaithfulness. And there are various kinds because not everybody in that house has the same status. There are some servants who are amazingly faithful in their role as servants, but at the end of the day, they're just servants, and it's not their house, and they don't have the same kind of ownership or personal benefit from what they do. But then there's the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of the children of the house. It's actually their house. The show actually presents a problem because there's no male heir to really take ownership of the house. Moses was faithful in God's house As a servant. But at the end of the day, he's like the footman or the dishwasher, faithful, but a servant. And that means that there's a limit to how much honor he can have. Moses cannot receive the same honor as the owner of the house, as the son of the house. Friends, but Jesus is faithful as a son. There's no searching for a male heir here. No, Jesus has shown up. He is the Son. The Son has arrived. And He is faithful to His Father as a Son. And therefore, He deserves the honor of a faithful Son. And friends, when you read here and it says God's house, don't think of a physical structure. Think of God's people, God's children. It says that very clearly in verse 6. We are His house. God's house is God's people. Jesus is faithful over us. He is faithful in his role as an apostle and high priest. His role as an apostle and high priest benefits us. Now, when I contemplated this truth, which was a great joy this week, such a joy to think through the Bible and and understand it. I like my job in that way. I, I couldn't help but think of John 17. Jesus prays this prayer in the shadow of the cross. Jesus knowing he's about to suffer an excruciating death to be faithful to the Father 
uh, prays this prayer. And I think it will help us flesh out what it means for him to be a faithful son. Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking about his role there as an apostle, isn't he? He's manifested his name to them. Yours they were. You gave them to me. Now they know that everything that you have is from me. And for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine is yours, and yours is mine, and I am glorified in them. Friends, what you see there in that prayer is Jesus acting as a faithful son. He is fulfilling the mission that the Father has given him with a sense of personal ownership. Not as a servant who wouldn't benefit from that work. No, he benefit in the same way. He is fulfilling his mission as a son. And the result is that he is glorified. See that there at the very end? And I am glorified in them. Which is to say he deserves more glory than Moses. The point of all this, and I know this passage is a little bit meandering in some ways. The point is simply that Christ was faithful as God's son. And thus he deserves to be honored as the faithful Son. And we can even worship Him as the Son. And we should draw strength from His faithfulness. As we contemplate His faithfulness, we should be led to be faithful as well. Friends, do you worship Christ truly for His faithfulness? Again, the contrast between Moses and Christ here is that you look at Moses' faithfulness, it's great in some ways, but you can't worship Moses for his faithfulness. Well, that would be idolatry. But Christ, because he is faithful as a son, means you can worship him. That is why he is worthy of glory. Do you worship him for what he's done? When we sing songs, do you realize that so many of the songs we sing as a church are about the faithfulness of Christ? As we're singing those songs, is your mind sort of drifting to other things? Or are you actually intent on worshiping Christ because of his faithfulness? But you know, the contrast between Moses and Christ here is not simply a contrast between a servant and a son. There's another implicit contrast here, and that is the contrast between the one who gives us the law and the one who brings us grace. Once again, John's gospel is helpful here. John writes, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. You see, Moses is faithful. He's best known for his faithfulness in going up on a mountain to bring God's law down to the people. And that law is great because it tells us what God's character is. But that law also prescribes punishments when the people disobey. And as a servant, that's all Moses can do. But Christ is faithful by going up on a cross to be punished for the people for all they've done wrong. And he can do that because he's the son. The best you get from Moses is directions on how to live. But you don't really get any help in living that way. And you don't get any grace when you fail. But in Christ, you get real help. You get the Holy Spirit who comforts us and helps us. You get somebody, as we saw last week, who knows our temptations and our sin. You get his sacrificial offering in our place, cleansing from sin. You share in his holiness. Now, the reality is, though, some of you are better at considering Moses than you are at considering Christ. 
Some of you are better at reading and searching the Scriptures for laws to obey than you are at searching the Scriptures for the the mercy and grace of Christ. Some of you are better at racking your brain to try to figure out how it is that I'll obey certain commands as if it is entirely up to us to figure that out than you are at considering the one who will help us to obey. The one who gives us his spirit that we can obey. There's nothing wrong with the law. Don't misunderstand. But look there in verse 5. Moses was faithful to testify of the things that would be spoken of later. Moses' role is an arrow to point us to Christ. When we look at Moses, we're supposed to be driven to Christ. The most important thing that the law teaches us is that the law will not be sufficient to sanctify us. And we need Christ to do that for us. In other words, Moses is great as far as he goes, but he doesn't go very far. And we need Christ who doesn't just tell us what to do, but forgives us of our sins and gives us real help that through his spirit we can walk in newness of life. So friends, consider Jesus. Consider him. And finally, the author presses upon us why all of this really matters so much. Notice what he says at the very end of verse 6. And we are his house. That means we are his people. We are one with him and have access to the Father through him. If, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If, see that there, there's something conditional. We don't like thinking about conditions, do we? Oftentimes, we like a theology that would say, as long as we are baptized or make some sort of profession of our faith, well, then it doesn't really matter what we do in the future. But friends, that's not what the Bible says. The grammar here is quite interesting. It says, we are his people. Note the present verb of being there. We are. That is, it is true of us now. If we continue to do something in the future, namely hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Notice, the grammar's not really intuitive here. It it doesn't say, we will become his people if we continue. As if it's really in doubt as to whether we are his people now. It doesn't say that because that would contradict what we've already seen about how we are holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling. No, we can have confidence that we are his children. But the test to see if we are really his children is that we hold fast to the confidence and boasting as his children. The confidence and boasting there as his children is not simply to affirm, you know, oh, I am a child of God, although it includes that. The confident boasting here is to actually live like his child. To live like his child in the midst of adversity. To say with Polycarp, for this many years Christ has been faithful to me. To know oneself as his child in that way. And then to say, how can I deny him now? Perhaps it's helpful to think a little bit more about what it means to be confident and boast in something. Think about how much confidence you might have when you get a promotion at work, say. or, Or when you begin to fall in love with somebody for the first time. Wow, this person wants to spend time with me. Or or think about what kind of confidence you would have after you finish a degree. Or think about what would happen if you thought you might die of a brain tumor, and then it's miraculously healed. Well, that would affect your mood, wouldn't it? Friends, all of that is nothing 
compared to what we receive in Christ. It's not that we might have a brain tumor and die a physical death. No, it's that we're in danger of hell. The fires of eternal suffering come upon the ungodly, as Polycarp said, and he's quoting scripture there. And that would be us if it were not for Christ. He saves us from hell. He gives us his spirit. He loves us. He welcomes us. And friends, the test to see if we're really a Christian or not is if we hold fast to the confidence that comes from from knowing those things. Think of the opposite of boasting and confidence. It's discouragement. It's to, as the Bible talks about, lose heart. But how can we be discouraged about the circumstances of our life? And I don't mean, you know, of course... The Bible is honest with the fact that we go up and down in life and that we have significant trials in our life. But but how can we as Christians look at the circumstances that are before us in our life and say, oh, I am so discouraged. None of the circumstances work for my good when part of those circumstances are that Christ has come and died for us to make us his children, to unite us to him and bring us to heaven with him when we die. Those are part of the circumstances of our life more real than the other things going on around us. And and if we really are God's children and see those circumstances, the ones that he has told us about in his word, then we can't face ultimate discouragement. We can't face ultimate despair. We must have some sense of confidence, some sense of boasting in him, if we really see the full circumstances for what they are. And that is why the author commands us here to consider Christ. That is to make the circumstances that Christ has laid out for us in his death and resurrection a focal point in our lives. We ought to look at them so that we see Christ and we maintain our confidence in him. I hope you realize that this is why we gather together on Sunday mornings, to hear God's word and worship Christ. It isn't just an added extra. It's not something we do just so that pastors can have jobs. I said at the beginning, we think it's important. And we think it's important because that's how we keep on considering Christ. So that we will maintain our confidence and our hope to show ourselves to be his children. That's why this gathering is important. We need to keep considering him. Friends, meet with other people throughout the week. Read God's Word together. Study the book of Hebrews together. Figure out all those other things in Hebrews chapter 3 that I didn't have time to talk about. Meet with somebody else and talk about those things. Help each other consider Christ. It's worth it because we must maintain our confidence firm to the end. Friends, let us take that command seriously and look to Christ for who he is and be encouraged that we have such a Savior who has come and loves us and died on the cross for us to make us his and to bring us with him in glory. Let's pray.